Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the Kodiak story with my friend Don Burnett. How's it going, Don? I'm doing great. Great to be here. Don, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Sure. I am Don Burnett. I'm the CEO of Kodiak Robotics. I'm here based in a, at our headquarters in Mountain View, California. We are a developer of self-driving technology, which is purposely built for long-haul trucks. And our primary product is called the Kodiak Driver. It has one of the most advanced technology stacks and is designed to make trucks safer and more efficient. Are you using these today? Are there cars or trucks driving, um, is it right to say, autonomously? Absolutely, yes. We are... Using our technology, we're already high, uh, hauling freight for a range of industry partners. So some of the nation's largest fleets, we work with Fortune 10, uh, 100 companies, and we also work with digital freight brokers. So we've been using our technology in the real world since 2019. So it's been several years now. Don, when we were prepping and we were talking to Daniel, uh, one of your guys, and one of the things we were talking about is this uh there's different thoughts on autonomous. When somebody says, oh, the autonomous, yeah, that'll be great, but not in my lifetime or someday, <laughs> but not today. And it is, it, I know we are doing it. I'm, I live near Ann Arbor and there's lots of autonomous stuff going on there. And I, I've said this on my podcast before. I remember uh, there was construction coming up as I was driving through Ann Arbor and I was like, I'm going to turn quick so I uh, you know, can avoid the construction. And a car right in front of me did the same. And I remember... I was like, oh, look how smart they are. And I was going to kind of like, you know, give them the wave, like, look at us, look how smart we are. I look, there's no driver in that car. And then I noticed some Russian company was driving it autonomously. I was like, <laughs> well, that was weird, you know? I mean, I was just going to give them the, the high five, you know, but. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a weird, weird time when I have to pull up next to a car and give the finger to uh, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> that will definitely be a strange time. I think. It is interesting. Public acceptance is is a tough one to crack. Autonomous technology in general, as it pertains to transportation, I would say even more ro more broadly, robotics. It's one of those areas of industry and innovation that really hasn't touched our lives in a meaningful way yet. You know, when I was growing up, robotics was primarily in factories. And even today, robotics is primarily in factories. So we don't get a lot of opportunity to interact with automation systems on a day-in and day-out basis. And so when people hear, oh, all of a sudden our, our vehicles on our roadways are going to be no driver, fully autonomous, it, it seems hard to believe. But, you know, I'm, I'm an automotive guy originally. I spent much, much, most of my career in automotive. And we have, you know, braking technology that says we're not going to wait for the human to hit the brake. Right. Because we're going to hit a wall before that or hit some back of a car. So we we have that. And it, that's a small place. But also, if you watch TV, you'll see, I think, Buick's always saying, hey, this car will parallel park for you. So we're seeing bits and pieces of it. This is, shouldn't be completely foreign to us. Right. And I think the big difference, the, the challenge that people have, the hurdle they have to get over is 
whether or not they feel like they're in control. Because we have braking assistance systems, we have parallel parking systems, now we have uh, driver assistance, autopilot-like systems that can actually drive you down the highway and in other circumstances. But the driver is always behind the wheel, paying attention, ideally, or at least they should be. And you have some sense of control. And I think it's the loss of control, the giving up of that control that really changes the paradigm in people's heads. But as you point out, we can make machines and we can make intelligent systems, particularly with modern machine learning and AI approaches that react much more quickly than humans can, that are always paying attention, that see 360 degrees around the vehicles. Yeah, and, it, and you will trust that more than you trust yourself at some yeah, point. It's absolutely. Just like right, right now when you say, hey, I've got to do a little math problem. I can uh, I can grab my phone and do that with the calculator there, or I can do it manually. At some point, if you're if you don't if it's two different numbers, you more likely trust the calculator than yourself. We've Always gotten to that place calculator. with we've gotten that place in a lot of our lives with technology. We're like, and especially true with AI and machine learning is. It has. It thinks differently. It thinks better. It doesn't have the biases. It does. It doesn't get lazy and cut corners like we all do in our thinking. And so, when it has new insights, you go, "Yeah, I know there's right." <laughs> I mean, they're not intuitive to me, but I know they're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting things I think that I've observed and people have studied in the last ten years, as it pertains to autonomous systems in transportation is that while the general public is generally distrusting because they have no experience with it, individuals who who are offered experience very quickly trust. They very quickly, like faster than you would expect, they start to believe, oh, wow, I've observed this system work for five minutes. I guess it's perfect. And you just are like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to let the system take over now. So people are actually very trusting once they have experience with it. And I think that's part of the challenge for the autonomous industry as a whole, particularly Kodiak. We want to find ways to get this technology out into the world in a, in a real and visceral way where people can experience it. And obviously, we can't put every person behind the wheel of our system, but we can post videos, we can go to conferences, we can talk to folks like yourself, right? We can get the word out so that people have a little bit more understanding and, and we'll start to slowly develop trust. Were you, by chance, were you guys at um, Manifest? We were at Manifest, yes. I, I actually gave a talk there. Were you giving rides there? We weren't giving rides, but we did have our truck out on display. There were several companies represented at Manifest. It was actually a great, great conference. I had Pam on my podcast yesterday, or yesterday, last week, and uh, she talked about the autonomous vehicles being at Manifest. I did not go this this last year, but I am going next year. In fact, I was talking to Courtney yesterday. I'm excited. They're excited because that was their first year, and got really great response. And I think um, everyone I've talked to who's been there thought great things. It exceeded my I feel bad because I talk to people now and they go, oh, did you get manifest? I was like, no. I was at my house. Should have been there, Joe. I was like, it's, it's, it was January in Michigan. I mean, if I'm going to leave here, are you kidding me? To go to Vegas? <laughs> Crazy? <laughs> anyway, Don, let's, uh, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some sense of you as a young person before you were making autonomous vehicles. Sure. I grew up in Sunrise, Florida, which is just outside of Fort Lauderdale, north of Miami. Very nice. It's where where the 
hockey team plays. What are they? The Panthers. So the Panthers oh, are okay. from there. They were just down the street from where I grew up. And I was always interested in math uh, as a kid. That's that's really one of the things that propelled me into this industry. My parents, my parents were both worked at Motorola, and oh, wow. my dad was on the mechanical design side side of things. But uh, you know, I, I had a very nice, comfortable upbringing in a su- suburb of of the South. Yeah, it's not the South. Florida's not the South. <laughs> that's it's right, just, South Florida. Florida. Right, exactly. It wasn't the, the South toward the South for sure. Yeah, you guys still have good football, though. I mean, <laughs> we did. Yeah, I was a Miami Hurricane fan growing up, which was those are good years, good years. Although I think you were you were at Michigan in the late '90s, if I if I recall correctly. Well, I've always been a Michigan fan. So my parents yeah. got season football tickets at Michigan when Bo Schembechler got there, like in '68, '69. And we still, like, my dad had, like, 20 season tickets because they were, like, wow. pushing people, please be a, f- a booster or be a fan of Michigan. And my dad's like, okay, so he bought all those tickets. And then as they started filling that stadium on a regular, they started saying, why do you have so many tickets? Who's sitting in those seats? And so now we're down to eight seats. But, yeah, I've always been a Michigan fan. And then I got my master's there. But I was, like, 30-some when I got my master's. Well, that was the Lloyd Carr era, right? They had the 1997 perfect season, run the, yes, won the Rose yes. Bowl. So it was a good time, good time. So Yeah, we had a good year this year. And back, we just actually lost our offensive coordinator, Josh Gaddis, to your Miami Hurricanes. He's a good get. Well, I, I grew up as a Miami Hurricane fan, but I ended up going to the University of Florida. Not a bad choice. That's a good school. I was there, I was there during the Tebow era, so it was... Uh, all we right. had some national basketball championships, some football championships. So it was it Lloyd was a Carr's great time. last game was against Tebow, and Urban Meyer was the coach. And you had this great uh, tight end that no one could stop, Aaron Hernandez. <laughs> it was yeah. A, and it, who was to know how these guys would I can, to take opposite directions? But uh, great team. That was Lloyd Carr's last game. I was at that game, I believe, in Orlando, I think. Guys lost. Yeah, yeah, it was rough. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think Urban like, Meyer lost too many more times to Michigan after that. No, but, that uh, yeah. So, um, you grew up playing sports. I did. Yeah, I played your typical baseball, soccer, football, but baseball was my primary sport. I played from the time I was probably four, starting a t-ball, and I played into high school. I was a pitcher. Nice. My mom was actually really into softball growing up, so she, you know, she wanted to put a bat in my hand from from a very young age. It was part of my my family. Yeah, that's it's a that's a great development for kids, and I think think that that we need to keep pushing all the sports on our kids. I, I always tell people I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, and I remember I was you know like a lot of kids just not wouldn't necessarily join every team, but my dad would, and would say, yeah, you're joining that team. And then my mom and dad would never let me miss a practice. I don't think I've ever missed a practice for hockey, for football, for swimming, diving, lacrosse, all the things I had to sign up for. <laughs> and I'm glad that they made me do that because it was just, I think you learn as much on the field or on the rink or on the court as you do in the classroom sometimes, especially Absolutely. about teams and learning to grind. So you went to University of Florida. What'd you study there? I studied electrical engineering, and I also studied math and physics. So I did, I did quite a bit there. I triple majored in those three subjects. Wow! Yeah, I was uh, very interested and curious. I, I wanted to do engineering as a career, and physics was a fascination, and math was a tool. So 
when you want to when you want to study physics, math is a good thing to know. Engineering, math is a good thing to know. So I thought, well, let me take some math courses. And I've always loved math. I still love math today. I think it's a fascinating subject. It's a beautiful subject. So I I worked really hard academically in my undergrad time, and this was really the formative years of moving away from electronics and into the world of AI and machine learning and robotics. Again, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, at the time, robots were really confined to the the warehouse. And there was, I don't know if you remember, but there was this competition called the DARPA Grand Challenge that was happening, I think, 2004. It's not just it a loss thing. Out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And that was this amazing competition that was sponsored by the U.S. government, by DARPA, where universities primarily, a few, a few companies, but primarily universities, put together a robot vehicle that tried to drive through really complicated desert environments. And I wasn't a part of that community at the time, but I looked at that and I said, that is just so fascinating. That's amazing that these, this. We also, we just were talking about solar car. We were talking just uh, the, the other day, I was talking to somebody about autonomous railroads, railroad cars and electric, battery electric uh, autonomous rail. And we talked a lot about the solar car competitions that a lot of schools yeah. competed in. Yeah, it's uh, as an as an old automotive guy, I say all the time, I love what's happening in the industry because we ha we had a lot of incremental incremental improvements, and now I think because the government mandates gas, we have no choice but to move to electric. If you talk to the average automotive guy here in Michigan, he'll go, "Yeah, we're going to have other problems." I mean, it's not like electric doesn't have environmental impact i used to tease a friend who has a tesla i was like hey how do you like your coal burning car <laughs> anyway that's getting way off track so what was your first gig out of school well you mean after i left university well it was a, it was quite a long long process so i decided during undergrad that i i really loved robotics and i wanted to study automation and i particularly got interested in transportation there was, I should probably tell a brief story here because I think it's really important to my personal motivation and my journey. I had a couple instances driving on the road that were, well, let me just say, I got into an accident that was not really my fault. It was on a busy highway. It was actually driving back up to school, visiting for Thanksgiving. And I felt like in that moment, I could have easily died. Right. I, I got lucky. I walked away, but it could have been could have been so much worse if certain things had gone just slightly differently. And I thought, man, that's really un it's really unfortunate. <laughs> I got lucky and I was greatly appreciative, but I, I felt like there there should be a better way. And then I had a friend who was also driving on the highway who was involved in an accident. He passed away. He was a high school friend oh, this was during my college time. And his name was Josh. And so this was all at the same time, like happening relatively in the same period of time. And I thought, you know, I bet I bet we can do better. I think we can do better. And I, I'm interested in trying to make it work. So I got really fascinated with autonomous transportation. Back then, there was no real business use case for the technology, but I wanted to do research. So I went to Carnegie Mellon's Robotics Institute to do my PhD oh, wow. after, after the University of Florida joined up with the Grand Challenge team there, 
worked with a guy most people probably know, Chris Ermson. So he was he was my PhD advisor there at CMU. He, well, I see. I I I don't know him. Is he famous for something? Well, he's he's known as one of the you know one of the real uh, figureheads of the autonomous industry. So ah, he okay. he was one of the early leaders of the Google self driving program, and I got the opportunity to, to join that program shortly after it started. Chris Chris brought me out to work with the team, and that's really what kicked off. So you went to Google then? Yeah, yeah. Then I went to Google. So I was at I was at Carnegie Mellon, and the funny thing is, my journey was not to go into industry. My plan was to become a professor and run a lab. Yeah, if you get a research PhD, grants. that's normally where you're going, right? Right. So there was no such thing as self driving industry at the time. So I wasn't even thinking about entrepreneurial, uh, you know, pursuit, starting a company. None of those none of those things were on my my horizon, but. Google decided to sponsor this team called Chauffeur. Now uh, has evolved into what is what is Waymo today, which is one of the self-driving players in the space. But I got to come out to California, I joined that team, and it was just an amazing time. I really, really enjoyed focusing on the technology. It was a bunch of researchers that we had assembled from a lot of different places, and we weren't so worried about where is the technology going, who's going to use it, how are they going to use it, where are they going to use it, all these types of questions. We were really just trying to say, answer the question, what is possible? How far can we push it in all kinds of directions? And it really wasn't for many, many years after that we started to think about the commercialization. And that's really where you see a lot of specialization, different companies trying to do different things and trying to figure out what, what works over time. So how long were you at Google and where'd you go next? I was at Google for about six years. And in 2016, I left Google and I co-founded a company called Auto. Auto was one of the first self-driving trucking companies. Now, to take a step back, about the 2014-2015 timeframe, obviously years had gone by without too much traction and too much success from a commercial standpoint. So the industry as at large started to think about what are the first applications? Where can we deploy this technology first? How can we get it into people's hands? How can we make a difference? There was a real desire to improve safety, to improve efficiency on the roadways. But there was this natural coalescence around the idea that we now call robo-taxis. Think about personal transportation, urban mobility. So folks in downtown city centers that want to move from A to B, and you don't necessarily want to own your own car, you want to get there, well, a self-driving vehicle can swoop and pick you up and then take you to where you want to be. The problem with that is that dense urban environments are some of the hardest and most challenging driving environments right. on the planet. <laughs> and as an engineer, I was a technical lead on the software side. I had been the one like implementing this technology for the last six years. And I really took a step back and said, I don't think the technology that we have, the tools we have, the computing systems that we have, the sensing systems that we have, I don't think they're really ready for that particular application. And on top of that, I didn't see the commercial need, right? People weren't banging our door down, begging 
for <laughs> self-driving robo-taxis to, to pick them up from A to B. And this is when ride-sharing you know, was on the rise and people could hail an Uber or Lyft or other, other companies pretty, pretty easily. And so I just felt like the advantage wasn't, wasn't strictly clear. And so it was the combination of those two things that made me think outside of the robo-taxi box. And it became pretty clear to me personally back in 2015 that long-haul trucking so highway environments that are more structured, more predictable. long distances, more, <laughs> more predictable. Exactly. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. They're more predictable. You could drive long distances on the open road, mostly out in the middle of nowhere. That was the application I think made the most sense, both on the technology side, but also from a commercial side. Right. This was a this was an industry that had a massive driver shortage. There's all kinds of supply chain challenges, which I know you guys you talk about on this podcast quite a bit. That was the application that I really wanted to focus on. So I ended up leaving Google and I co-founded Auto, working on self-driving long haul trucks for the first time. So how long were you at Auto before you decided to go and do something else? I mean, I'm assuming you went from Auto to uh, Kodiak. No, actually. So Auto got acquired by Uber. So Uber had uh, an existing self-driving program called Uber ATG. It was based primarily out of Pittsburgh. They were focused on robo-taxis and we got acquired and we joined forces with them. And I became one of the technical leads on that team. I was once again focusing on the robo-taxi problem and also continuing to work on the trucking problem. So it was a, it was a fun time Learned a lot, learned a lot organizationally. I was starting to develop more as a leader at this point, right, from a broader organizational sense. And I think that was a really important piece of the journey for me. But Uber is not a trucking company, or at least right. wasn't at the time. And ultimately, leadership decided, really, what we need to do is focus on this robo-taxi problem. So once again, I was faced with this decision, do I want to go in on that application or do I really want to continue to pursue trucking? And for me, it was the answer was very clear. So I decided to leave Uber. That was 2018. And I took a look around the industry. I wasn't super excited about the other opportunities that were out there. My entire life was built around self-driving. This is like my passion at this point. I'm very experienced at this point. So, And I had learned a lot of lessons. I had learned a lot about what works, what doesn't, and how to build teams, and what kind of experience matters. So that's when April of April of 2018 decided to start Kodiak. Nice, nice. So it was really just to focus on the stuff that you really cared about rather than the the automotive. So automotive is very different, but you know it's interesting before we leave that. I've said this to my kids many times. I said, uh, I said someday you'll tell your grandkids that you used to drive your car and that it used to um and, and they would say, well, couldn't you run red lights? Couldn't you switch lanes without signaling? And, and say, yeah. And that's why 50, 60,000 people a year would die. And they'd be like, that's like a war, right? It, it yeah. would seem unbelievable, I suspect, to future generations that you let us irrational, distracted beings drive vehicles. And so I think it will get to a place, and it's not going to be your problem perhaps, but I, I'm sure you'll be interested in – where we will get to the place where we'll have that um, autonomous dr driving cars. But I also, you mentioned urban congestion. I haven't looked at the stats lately, but if you look at urban congestion, a lot of it is people looking for parking. And I forgot, I want to say 20, 30, 40% 
in big cities is people looking for parking. And if you think about it, if Don, if you and I were going somewhere and it's our car said, where are you going? And it took us to the front of that. We get out, we go in and that car doesn't have to park. It can park 10 miles away. We don't care. And so you have these urban areas. How much of it is devoted to parking? And why is it devoted to parking? It's just the way we've always done it. So you think about like my sister used to live in Brentwood and I remember her showing me a parking lot and she said, this was a building, a nice building. She goes, one that wouldn't be torn down anywhere else in in the world. They tore it down to put this parking lot up because the parking lot way back in the day was $20 an hour. (laughs) And we're using valuable urban space for parking and our roads are congested with people looking for parking. It reminds me, and this is a whole nother subject, grass. When we you buy a big new house, you go, look at me, I have grass. Now I can focus my energy on having great grass. It was no one's plan to care about grass. <laughs> but one day, it's like you got a memo. Grass is now your new thing. <laughs> That's right. That's why you find yourself in that that situation. So I, it's 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 an unintended consequence. Uh, this again, the urban the urban congestion, and again the the irrational beings at the wheel. We're the at some point we will be the weak link in cars, and maybe we already are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's no question about that. I think that the way we've constructed our urban centers, the way we have built a massive amount of parking. I I don't know what the statistic is. I, I think you're probably uh, in the ballpark there, but it is it is one of those things where we will look back, I think, as a society and say, "What, what were we, we thinking?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. What were we thinking? Like that was uh, quality of life. I believe will improve dramatically once we start to repurpose a lot of our land for more livability and autonomy is part of that solution. To be fair, you could still have a human driven taxi service in those types of areas and eliminate parking today. You don't need the autonomous component of it. But I think there's an activation energy there. You really need something to push that decision forward. And autonomy definitely has the opportunity to to be that forcing factor. My mom was in a very bad accident. Thank God she's okay. But somebody crashed in the back of her car, pushed her into another one, put her in the hospital. So her car was just destroyed. And when I was taking her stuff out, it was unbelievable. It's hard to even get her stuff out of it when I went to the junkyard. And she's in her, you know, her 80s. And I started saying, well, mom, you know, you just use Uber and Lyft. And she goes, no, 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 no. I'll just go buy a car. You know, take me to buy a car. So I, we bought her a new car. But So her generation and even my generation, be one of the younger baby boomers, we like the idea of I have a car. But some days that car doesn't move out of my garage. Right. And so the idea of that I think your generation will say – I don't really care if I own a car. Car means I got to put gas in it. I got to take it to the maintenance. I don't want to do any of that. So I think we'll get to a place where we have fewer vehicles and I don't necessarily have to own it, especially if we get to an autonomous where it says, hey, I have access to a car anytime I need it. It takes me wherever I want to go and I don't have to pay the same. And I think we could have many, much fewer cars. One other thing, I was talking to some of my engineering friends and family about autonomous and this is the challenge that we're going to have to fix. Going out partying with your friends. We're not going to drive, of course. But can I sit in the back seat and take that car take me home? I think probably can. And I just worry about like somebody getting drunk and then them saying, we're, we're going to ship him to Peoria. <laughs> and you wake up in the back seat going, where am I? <laughs> oh, my, my 
loser friends shipped me 500 miles away while I slept. You're going to have to fix that problem. Anyway. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I haven't thought too much about that. <laughs> you, you have to. Come on. That's because that's you're too busy getting those math degrees and physics degrees. You can't get those. They don't go with beer. Anyway, so tell us a little bit about what you're tr- what you guys are doing at Kodiak. What, what year did you open? 2018. And when did you get your first product out there where actually driving down the road? So that was about mid-2019, so just about a year after we started the company. So who is the first customer and what were, what were you doing? So we, we can't actually talk about You don't have to say their was. name. I mean, yeah, what kind, what so. kind of, what, what do they do? Yeah, so they're, they're a large e-commerce player and they, they ship a lot of goods. So they move a lot of goods around the country. And I think I didn't mention this early on, but we're based in Mountain View, California, but we have a testing and, and operations facility based out of Dallas. So when you look at the regulatory landscape in the United States, it's a, it's a patchwork of state reg- regulations. And there's certainly more favorable states from a regulatory You're standpoint. You're going to need autonomous vehicles from California to Texas. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and we, we do drive. We drive, of course, we have a safety driver behind the wheel right now, right? So none of our trucks are driving fully empty, if you will. They are autonomous. They're fully engaged. They can handle just about everything that the highway throws at them, including construction, tart, cut-ins and merges and interchanges. They can drive all of that. But we have a, we have a person monitoring the system. And that they can always override it. They can always override it. I mean, most people would be more familiar with like a Tesla autopilot-like system. And our, our, effectively, we're operating in a similar fashion today. But our goal is to ultimately get to what's called a level four, a SAE level four autonomy level, which means that we don't have to have a driver in the seat. As you said, we could put put our friend in, in the back seat and, and hit go. <laughs> That's not really our business. That's we're, we're, we're moving goods and we do want to just move, ac- move across the, com- uh, the country right. overnight. That would be ideal, actually. We put the goods in the back and then we send the truck across the country in a way <laughs> that it can't get there today. So Right. And so that first application... It, was it was it a set lane that yeah. it was always doing? So so did you have a lot of confidence in that lane? I, I mean, I know you said it can navigate all these things and you have that override, but was was it important to you guys that there'd be a lot of predictability about the lane? So you go, we understand this. And was it how, and how long was that? That's a really good question. So we started on the Dallas to Houston lane, and there was a couple reasons that Dallas to Houston makes a lot of sense for us. On one hand, when you think logistically about your testing, you want to be able to get your drivers to their destination and back, ideally in one day. And as you know, drivers are restricted by hours of service. Typical driver can drive only for 11 hours, and then they, then they have to be off the clock. So we wanted to find a, a, a route that had shipping volume, ideally favorable weather. Weather is something that we are are working on. We've actually made a ton of progress. I'm happy to talk and dive into that. But we wanted to find a place that had favorable weather that was about the right length. And so it's about 500 miles back, down and back from Dallas to to Houston and back. A driver can do it in one day, but 500 miles is a long distance. It's enough to really challenge the system. We didn't want to find a toy route, if you will. We didn't want to find something that was super easy or super predictable. We wanted to find a route that we felt like was representative of the US highway system, the interstate highway system, because that's ultimately where 
we want to deploy this technology. And so Dallas to Houston sort of fit all of the criteria optimally. And we started we started driving on that lane and we were working with uh, some partners to, to move freight on a daily basis. And we are only increasing that uh, today. We have added additional routes. So we announced last year that we started to drive Dallas-Fort Worth to San Antonio. And we've actually started a third route, which we haven't announced yet, so I won't spoil it here. I know my comms team would would hate me if I did that, but we're we're about to announce uh, another new route, and we're also looking to expand now in 2022 beyond Texas. So we have the one hours of service hall, but what does autonomy look like over multiple hours of service, right? Because that's ultimately the promise of this technology. Obviously, there's safety, right? Safety is important. We want to improve safety. That's why most of us got into this, but efficiency and reliability are incredibly important and trucks autonomous trucks don't you know presumably will not be restricted by that 11 hour 11 hour mark right so our truck can drive 24 28 32 hours straight you know provided that the route they have enough fuel to get there, there there's no reason that they need to stop and so we really want to demonstrate those longer multiple multiple hours of service routes that showcases the the future of what this technology is going to bring are these all diesel engines that you're using? These are all diesel, yes, for now. The reason I ask is because I've always heard like here in the Detroit area, and I haven't worked in it in many years, and I never was really a powertrain guy, but I've always heard that when they, we'd get to autonomous vehicles for automotive, that they most likely would be electric. And they said, easier to manage. I didn't know if that was a, a challenge that you had to face because of the, the shifting necessary in combustion engines. It is a challenge. And I would say that having worked on electric vehicles in the past and also gasoline, diesel vehicles, electric is a little bit easier for sure because you don't but have it to can't worry go, about shifting. But it can't go that 500 miles. But it, but it can't go that far, right? So I think on the pass car side, you're going to see autonomy and electric really married together. I think they're going to roll out together. On the long haul trucking side, we're really restricted by physics and our current understanding of battery technology. So we're interested in in battery electric. We're interested in hydrogen. We're interested in you know natural gas and other other alternative fuel sources that have the range range extended distance to to really make our business efficient, our product efficient. But we're not truck manufacturers. Kodiak Robotics is a full stack autonomy de- de- developer. We build the, we put the hardware for the sensing and the compute and the software and the intelligence into the vehicle. And we pretty much have to work with whatever the industry can give us at the time. So right now that means diesel combustion engines. So I think just to clarify for anyone listening. So we're looking at electric vehicles for the final mile. I think we'll see that very soon. If we're already seeing it, I suspect that I'm. I haven't talked to anyone lately about it, but I, I, that is not a challenge because the battery technology will give you those 100 miles or 200 miles that you need for that. The long haul, we're going to long haul for a while, we're going to have diesel engines because that's what's required. I can't stop and charge my truck for four or five hours at electric charging station. It does make right. sense. Kind of defeats but, the purpose. Right. But I do think we're going to move to something else. Maybe it'll be compressed natural gas or you mentioned hydrogen. 
also we're just we're seeing carbon capture carbon capture by Remora and I think also uh, Saudi Aramco. I mean they they are the biggest company on earth by far and they sell yeah. gas oil. <laughs> and so they have a vested interest in making sure we continue to use it. If we can capture all that carbon, maybe it doesn't matter, but yeah. So you're back to your back to your vehicle. That first, did you treat these like a prototype when it was Dallas to to Houston and back? Was that a, like a prototype in your mind? Then you said, "We're all right, we're gonna. This is a one-off, and then we're gonna afterwards prove it out a little more and and maybe do redesign some parts." Or was that uh, in your mind a completed, complete vehicle ready to ready to roll? It's an ongoing process. So we've we're now on our fourth generation of the Kodiak driver. That includes uh, you know four four iterations of the hardware configuration, the sensor suite, the software that we load onto the system, and we have been utilizing the Kodiak driver in the commercial market. So moving commercial goods over the road since 2019. And we've been doing that continuously. And that's uh, that's always going to continue as we continue to develop the system. And there will be a fifth generation and, and, and you know, we'll continue iterating. Does Kodiak always retrofit an existing truck or do you sell it through the original equipment manufacturer? Right now, because the technology is not to the point where we can pull the safety driver out of the seat, we are primarily working with what we call a concept fleet, a development fleet that's Kodiak owned. And we purchase trucks from the manufacturer and then we upfit those. But in the early days, we were doing that in our garage here in Mountain View. Nowadays, we actually work with contract manufacturers, professional upfitting facilities right. that you know would would create dump trucks. You have the and right. Other qu- types. You have the quality and exactly. The, and the you consistency. have the quality and consistency that a manufacturer brings to the table, and we have the ability to scale very broadly with that with that upfit system. We could build thousands of these these machines if we if we wanted to really turn the dial and and scale it up. We're not ready to do that just yet, but the capacity is there. Yeah. How many miles have you driven with your vehicles? We we have driven just under a million miles at this point Whoa, in autonomy. Very nice. So that's that's the real world component. But what most people don't realize is that there's really three ways to test autonomous systems. Of course, we can put it on a truck and we can go out there and drive Dallas to Houston, Dallas to San Antonio, et cetera. But we can also simulate miles. So we have really powerful simulation tools that allow us to very quickly and repeatedly test our system in very challenging, some challenging, some not challenging, everything in between environments. And so we can drive millions and billions of miles in simulation and then we have a third component that we call structured testing. And this is where we go to a test track. We go to a closed private road. We take our physical system, our real trucks, and we can mock test certain things that you would typically not find out on the public public road. So we can set up custom scenarios. And in particular, the most important aspect of this is that we can take a sampling of our simulation tests and recreate them in the real world precisely right? and verify that the results we get in the real world under real dynamics matches the results we get in simulation. Because that correlation is what allows us to build confidence that our simulation is one, giving us valid data and results, and two, is really actually pushing our development forward. So we do most of our development in simulation. It's cheaper, it's easier, and we can do so much 
more so much faster than we can by driving yeah, automobiles. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I can say this from my own automotive experience. When I first started in automotive, people love to do testing on parts. So sometimes it was a destructive test where you say, oh, we're going we're gonna to shut this door 100,000 times, right? Right. Accelerated life testing. But you had to build that prototype, right? And and it was very expensive to create these physical. And then we would crash cars all the time. And then I would say in the 90s, we started saying, we can do this with computer simulations. And so we started doing it. But to your point, you always have to go back to the physical world and prove to everybody that the simulation was actually matching the real world. And I remember we went from, I was working on projects at Chrysler, and we went from having to build a hundred prototypes for, for crashing cars, for testing down to like 20, down to like 10. And that, and by the way, the Japanese were doing it that way. They're very frugal about their prototypes. And I always remember I was in program management by that time. And I always remember people would say, well, how am I supposed to know whether my part's going to survive the crash if I can't crash it? And I was like, because you have an engineering degree, dude. If if you don't want to do, if you don't want to simulate this, if you can't figure out how to do the math here, why we hire engineers here? And it was a funny thing because it did change. I worked as an engineer. I don't have my undergrads not in biz, uh, in engineering. It's in business. But I had a the experience that I felt like was comfortable with with that. But there was a lot of people really got used to the idea that we can crash infinite amount of cars for safety. And you just can't. The costs are just astronomical on prototypes. Right. I mean, they'd, they'd be $200,000 a piece. And they also just drives a lot of development time. If you can get to the place where you're doing it online, you can iterate like constantly. Exactly. You're like, we just, we crash that thing a hundred times a day and see what's going on. Well, that's fantastic. So anyway, so we've talked a little bit about the technical, but I want to understand like the how do you guys, are, where, where does Kodiak connect with the existing vehicle to, I mean, got to press uh, the accelerator and, and to press and press the brake. Obviously that's not a, you know, not like you see in a cartoon with a wooden stick in there. How are you managing all that? Is that all ma- managed by electronics? Like a controller? It it's primarily electronics with a controller. So we work very closely with the manufacturers and the tier one suppliers. So the folks that actually build the braking systems, that build the engines like Cummins, steering columns, steering motors, those sorts of things. And you see it more on the pass car side, or you saw it earlier on the pass car side, but now even on the heavy duty trucking side, you've got these electronic braking, electronic steering systems that are being built in. And now, because of the autonomy push, you're seeing these developers, these manufacturers build redundancy into those systems, which is ultimately what we need in order to ensure the safety of our system. So it is controlled by wire. Yes, we drive by wire. We have braking valves that go into the into the pneumatic braking systems because in big trucks, it's a it's a pneumatic system. We have electric electronically controlled valves. We have multiple of those valves. So if one fails, we have backup. They're independently powered. They're on independent buses. So communication wires, if you will, to simplify it. And so we've really thought through how to build this in a a redundant and resilient way so that if there's any one failure in that system, that underlying platform, that the truck is still fully controllable and that we can observe, identify, and isolate those faults 
in the system. So, so you buy these original equipment, you buy from the original equipment manufacturer, you retrofit is probably understating it, but because you're probably rebuilding it, but, and do you put Kodiak on the side along with your OEM or how's that work? Or yeah. Autonomous by Kodiak, uh, powertrain. Just Kodiak for now, just Kodiak for now. We have a trailer that says self-driving, but we, we primarily move trailers for, for our customers. So they have, they have their branding on them, but yeah, we, we buy the trucks from the manufacturer. We add our sensors, we add our computers and we add our software. That's, that's really what we do. It's not as invasive as you might imagine, especially Kodiak's approach to integration into the, into the chassis. So we use a proprietary, we've, we've patented this approach, putting all of our sensors into one external pod, or actually two, there's one on each side, but they're identical, they're the same. So with just four bolts onto the main chassis of the vehicle and you know one pass-through connector, we can attach our entire autonomy system onto the truck. And you probably would see our truck and not even know that it was an autonomous truck. I mean, it looks, you look closely, you can tell, and you know what you're looking for, you can tell. But we think this is really important for the installation capabilities and efficiency, but also for maintenance. This is one of the things that we're really learning as we become involved more in the community, more in the industry, is that fleets and carriers are ultimate customers because we want to provide this technology to those players. They care a lot about uptime. Their number one metric is to keep the trucks running. And so if you have an autonomy system that has an error or a sensor breaks or some kind of fault happens and it needs to be repaired, the trucks can't come down for days while a technician goes in and, you know, figures out how to how to dive in, right? It has to be a hot swap. I think it's also, you mentioned fleets, and I think this, um, I suspect you're going to tell me this, is that it's important that you're selling to fleets and companies that you can work with and have the back and forth so you can continually get better. I know uh, the automotive companies that I've used to work with here in the Detroit area, used to own rental car companies. So we would always have those as fleets where we could go look at vehicles that had 25,000 miles on them. And it, we had a relationship. So I think, do you prefer, or, or in the short run, will you always work with fleets and companies that you say we will be able to, uh, they won't hold us at arm's length once we sold them our technology? Right. Both in the short term and the long term. Like that's really the business model. Working with the existing industry is one of the most important things when it comes to developing this technology. Too long have, and this is not just a AV, autonomous vehicles, but in lots of technology industries, entrepreneurs, startup companies, they put their heads down, they, they put the blinders on, <laughs> they build technology, and then they present it to the world and say, you're welcome. Here's the amazing technology. And the world's like, ooh, that's not actually what I needed. That doesn't actually solve the problems because you weren't talking to your customer along the way. Isn't that right? drive you crazy? And funny, people always say to me, um, every time I talk about S- Steve Jobs, they go, Steve Jobs didn't care what the customer wanted. I go, no, you misread what he said. <laughs> he said the customer doesn't know what he wants but it's my job to figure out what they want. You know, it, it, and, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but it right. drives me crazy that like he just like him and his team went in the back and came out with this iPhone and said, here you go, exactly what you wanted. No, he knew the market so well that he was able to say, and same with like the minivan. 
Nobody asked for the minivan, but we had a sense that moms and dads were driving kids around and eating groceries and taking them to soccer and that they wanted it. And then when we all, I don't know if you have kids yet, when you saw that minivan, you're like, I don't want one, but I need one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I know no kids yet for me, but, but I have lots of friends who are in that situation. So I'm, I'm living, yep. uh, living through them, but you're absolutely right. What you also don't realize, I just want to make one comment there, which is, you also don't see the other 40 prototypes that were considered before that one was the the down-selected one that we we all know and love today, right? There was lots of research and development that went on behind the scenes that you just don't see. Right. So you said there's always a driver in this, and so there's always that override. And again, I think that's a confidence that we're going to need. I, I think you guys are smart to say this is the way we're going to pr- proceed. And so how comfortable would you be if on the, some selected route where you say, we're just not going to have the driver in there? Not not from a perception perspective, but just from a, he's not doing anything. He's not taking over control of the vehicle ever. So what do we need him for? What do we need him for? So there's a really thorough analysis that we need to go through to prove to ourselves, to our partners, to the general public that we are actually ready to take that step. It's not enough just to say, ah, the driver doesn't seem to be doing anything anymore. Right. Let's pull let's pull the driver out. There's There's a really rigorous statistical analysis that we go through. Are in the, and are going through to show that, in fact, the likelihood of having an incident is lower than what it would be if a human were driving the vehicle. That's really the bar that we've set for ourselves. That's the bar that the industry upholds. You could ruin this industry, you all by yourself, your company, if there was a horrific accident, right? Absolutely. If there was, if there was a sense that. It's ten percent less than a regular driver. That's everything. I mean, yeah, you know, the, the general. I, I don't even know the details, but I remember. I think it was Tesla had a, an accident with a person, and I don't even remember the details. But it just—it's one of those things that sets the industry back so far because it's could be one in a ten million, and all people know is somebody got hit by a car. Yep. Yeah. Safety is our. Number one priority, you know, we, it's our, our, it's first and foremost, it's uh, safety. We say internally, we say safety first and always, right? It's, it's in our DNA and it really has to be, you have to set up your culture around safety when you're dealing with critical life technologies. And it's something that we take very seriously. And we want to be very good stewards of that responsibility. We want to know for sure and have really done our diligence to, to show unequivocally that our system is in fact safe enough to do to do so and and we don't intend to take the driver out until we've actually reached right. that point so this is this is just my own curiosity about this is but when you say autonomous vehicle so is it driving itself by by seeing the road like some sort of visual sensor or is it going by some sort of gps what other magic are you using how is this going down the road and staying between the lines How are you guiding that vehicle? Well, so this is one of the key innovations and differentiations, I think, that Kodiak has with a lot of the the other players and the other companies that are working on this technology. Traditionally, the way it works and what most companies do is they build these really detailed maps of the environment. So really high precision maps that tell you everything you need to know about every little square inch of the road. And then once you're a car is back out on the road, it can identify those features in the environment and then know where it is. And that can be aided by GPS, but it also can be aided by the lines on the road, the texture on the road, the trees on the side, the K-rails, the walls, everything. You can can use all of those as features. 
the challenge becomes when those features change, right? And they always construction, do. And they always do, especially people don't realize when you're driving 500 miles, there's three or four active construction zones in that amount of stretch on an interstate highway all the time working every day with the exception of And holidays. so the markers are missing from right. those areas. Things change. And so the way we developed it at Kodiak is that we don't rely on high-definition mapping systems. We have trained our system to drive the way humans drive. We identify where the lanes are in real time by looking at lane markings, by looking at other vehicles, by looking at kind of the texture on the road and other things. But we're looking to identify the lane topology in and around the vehicle. We don't have a sense of like our exact GPS coordinate is here and we need to move to that. That's not not precise enough. That's also not how humans drive. We've really tried to model our system off of how humans drive. We have eyes. We see 360 degrees around the vehicle. We're doing it multiple times a second. And we can identify where we are within our lane and where all the other cars are on the road within their lanes. And then we can build a plan. We can make a plan about how to continue driving so that we stay in our lane and keep a safe, comfortable distance from all the other vehicles on the road. And that that really, I think, is the way it needs to be done if you're going right. to build a robust enough system that can drive for hundreds or even thousands of miles down the road each and every day reliably. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure you've done it. We've all done it. When you're turning your vehicle sometimes and you hit the curb with your back wheel. And I, I always have thought, how does... You know, I'm right here. I can see the entire environment. Maybe I'm distracted, whatever I did. You make that mistake and you go, how will will, uh, machines do that? But what you're telling me is once fully honed in, it'd be less likely to run over that curb than I would be because I might have been talking on the phone or I might have been playing with my radio. They aren't going to do that. That's right. And this is precisely what machines are very good at. We can identify the curbs. We know where the wheels are. It's constantly planning a trajectory that avoids collisions with the wheels and the vehicle and the curbs and and other things. So, and it's doing it without ever getting drowsy, without ever getting distracted, without ever, you know, certainly not driving drunk or not getting high, not getting drunk, not getting in fights with your girlfriend on the road. Yeah. Always paying attention. That's the key. That's, that's really the, the holy grail. We want a driving system that has precision, that can react quickly and is always paying attention. And that is ultimately what's going to make our roadway safer. Right. So you mentioned that you were very concerned with how you're scaling. And so you're being very methodical, very precise about not getting scaling quickly because you want to just keep learning and you're going through these iterations. When will you feel like, hey, we're going to go ramp up production to a uh, uh, higher? Or, I mean, I should say, what will be the milestones that you're looking for that you go, now is the time to, uh, and I suspect you'll be talking to all your investors and saying, it's go time, guys. <laughs> right. Well, we are we are actively in a, in a scaling, uh, we're scaling now. Okay. We are, we are building, we're more than doubling our fleet in 2022. Uh, we had 10 trucks as of last year. We're, we're looking to build another 25 trucks here Ooh. in 2022. So that is that is still small in the grand scheme of but the it's freight two world. And it's more than double than last yeah, year, right? Yeah, and then in 2023 we're going to we're going to continue to to scale and accelerate that scale from there. So I think within the next, you know, 3 to 4 years 
as we continue to ramp that growth and accelerate that build and, and mature the system and hone in on the final the final driverless fully certified system, that's that's kind of the time frame where you're going to see it really really start to scale up. So you're you have this you have tons of data from these cars driving the, down the road. So you, is each is all that data going back into a system that is saying that doing analysis and making updates? Yes, and that's actually the beauty of a self-driving fleet, which is when one vehicle learns, the entire oh, fleet learns. Right? We we Unlike as humans, us. we only see our own per- <laughs> we only see our own perception. We only get our own experiences. The larger the fleet is, the more data we collect, right. the more we learn, the faster we learn. The entire fleet gets that information almost instantaneously. So every truck is collecting data. Every truck is learning from its experience. We bring that data back into our data center. We crunch and analyze what happened and we we make changes to the system. And then that system gets deployed to the rest of the fleet. Yeah. And at some point, I imagine I'll you know, be able to say, hey, under these circumstances with this much rain and or this much snow and traffic at this, this congested there is much higher chance of accident. We're going to take the following action, right? Exactly. It's fascinating. So I want to switch gears just a little bit. I know I'm going to lose you because we've gone way over my time with you, but you guys have grown a lot. Um, what have you learned as a manager as you guys have grown? I mean, you're obviously a very talented uh, engineer and physicist and all this, but now you're leading, I guarantee, a product team. What has been kind of the adjustments and what have you learned along the way about building a team and also kind of switching from that uh, brilliant engineer to somebody who has to lead other engineers? We're probably not as brilliant. That's always the problem. (laughs) It's, It's a challenging transition. You're absolutely right. Being so close to the technology for so long Sometimes it's hard to let go. You have to trust other people. That's that's a big thing. It's learning to trust others, learning that you don't have to be involved in every decision that gets made, right? And I, I'm a firm believer in the don't don't let perfect be the the enemy of good, right? There are a lot of decisions that can be made that where one is slightly more optimal than the other, you know, choices maybe, but all of them are good. All of them are good enough. And you never want to say that in business. You never want to make good enough decisions. But I actually think it's one of the most important psychological barriers that you as a leader need to get get right. used to. Because you just can't do everything. You can't spend the time. It's way too inefficient to make perfect decisions all the time. You have to make good enough decisions most of the time. The the stuff that sticks on your to-do list that doesn't get done is usually, in my mind, and and I say this myself, is I've learned it's the stuff that I'm in my head think it has to be perfect. So I got to send that email and it has to really nail it or I have to get that proposal. It has to be perfect. And so rather than just do it right now, I I wait. I wait because later on I'll be perfect and I'll write it perfectly. Right. So your team, where is most of your team based in Mountain View or is most of your team? It's split. It's split. Most of it is in Mountain View. A majority is in Mountain View, California, but we have an ever-growing team of operations and technicians and support folks in Dallas, Texas as well. So we're growing in both locations. Great. Great. So I'm going to ask you this and you answer it in any order you want. So I want to know What's next for this industry? What's next for your company? And then what's next for you? Sure. One thing I think is important to for the listeners to recognize that they aren't 
already aware is that this technology is very mature. As we speak today, our system and our systems like like Kodiak, like the Kodiak driver, are handling incredibly complex and challenging road conditions out there each and every day. We're doing so in the real environment with while moving real freight, working with the existing industry. It's not it's not a toy project. It's not prototypes. We're working with the automotive manufacturers and the tier one suppliers, the folks who have been designing these systems for for decades and decades. And so it's really mature and it, it is coming. It's it's not just coming, but it's it's really already it's here. here. And there's a couple <laughs> things, right? The next the next steps are validating those redundancies that I talked about earlier. Because re- if I could reduce the entire description of the challenge of autonomy to one word, if you only gave me one word, I would choose redundancy. Redundancy in your sensing, in your compute, in your decision making, in your actuation you know, brake and, brake and throttle and steering, et cetera, and your power, because you have yep. to have power. That's why planes don't fall out of the sky, right? That's right. That's right. They have multiple systems. And so we need we need those systems in, in our self-driving vehicles. And that is the last big hurdle and milestone for us to overcome as an industry. And that is really what the industry is working on. Uh, and Kodiak is no exception. Our, our algorithms and our technology, I believe is state-of-the-art, world-class, best best in the industry, but we still have validation and certification steps that we need to go through before we're ready to pull the driver. And the next several years is really going to be about working through those milestones, uh, working through those those certification processes. You know, it's what's interesting, and you said it, and I, I never gave this much thought until you did say it, is you want to be better than the driver. Before you take the driver out, you want to be able to say, we're better than the driver. Well, what driver? The very best driver who's never had an accident in 35 years, or the driver who hasn't had an accident in five years, or the new driver. I think you have to be up there with the guy who's never been in an accident for 35 years. And that's the challenge you guys have, because the the entire industry is just, it's such a novelty that everybody's watching. And so if there's an accident and somebody says, hey, there was an accident and there was no driver. Right. It's a scandal. Now, there's accidents every single day with drivers who might be impaired, who might have been distracted, who might have not followed their hours of service. By the way, most would never do this. Of but course not. there's accidents every single day with us humans. But in a lot of ways, you're held even to, probably to a higher standard than the best human. Absolutely. And that's that's really the standard that we have to we have to hit. And I think a large part of the challenge for us is education. We, when it comes to public acceptance, regulatory acceptance, it's education. We need to explain our rationale and our reasoning as to why we think the system is safe and what is the testing that we did to to show that the system is safe. And that's a challenging, it's a challenging thing to do and to do it in a way where lay people can understand, right? It's one thing to go to a statistician and say, here are all the facts and figures, but like nobody... This, this is, is a, a decision element, right? There's a decisions and perceptions that are based on pure emotion. Right. And when, the, when there is an accident, especially when there's injuries, it's just pure emotion. And all of a sudden you're, you know, the whole industry, not just you, the whole industry is looked at as we've done something wrong. And that's, again, that's, you've, you've got the, uh, you've got the whole industry's resting on your shoulders as you move forward because again, yeah. it's, we know this is coming and we know this is a, a positive thing, but it's one of those places where there's also danger in the, in the decision-making. So good luck to you. So you said what's, what's new for your, 
industry, what's happening with the company? What's what's new with you? Where, where do you, where do you see yourself going in the, in this overall? I mean, I'm I'm fully dedicated to Kodiak, and I love I love this company. I love the people that are here, and you know, it's one. Of, I'm having the most fun I've ever had in my career, and I just am really looking forward to continue to to drive to drive the company forward. For me personally, the transition is more toward the external focuses. So things like communicating with the media, talking to the public, giving talks, being on podcasts, right. and, and evangelizing the benefits that this technology is going to bring, explaining the details as simply as possible as to how the technology works. Obviously, I focus a lot on investors. We're a private company, and so we need to continue to raise money. We need to continue to show milestones, and you have to you have to really be able to stand up and explain your technology in simple and elegant ways. Right. And that's really what I I spoke I focus my time on these right. days. Less on less on building the code and and more on the vision for the company. That's not easy. I always I worked in program management for many years in automotive and I always remember I would work with my engineering teams and then I would go back to senior management, marketing, all the different teams. And it's funny, sometimes you get like engineers would say, Oh, I sent that to you, Joe. And I was like, you sent me like 12 pages, <laughs> single, single, uh, single space with your, the fed regs and your design standards and the fu- functional requirements. I was like, I need like three bullet points in English <laughs> for, for the vice presidents to go over. They're like, Oh yeah, that's it. So it is, it is a challenge as you take your very technical world and explain it to the layman. Because we want to hear, we want to hear the words that we understand. Any yeah. gobbledygook, we're going to go. Oh my god, this guy's trying to con us, right? Anyway, how do we reach out? How do people? How do people reach out and talk to you guys and and talk about getting autonomous vehicles for their for their lanes? You can visit our website at Kodiak.ai. Very simple, and you know we can always reach out to uh, press or contact at Kodiak.ai. Those are great email lists that we'll we'll get in contact with the right people. What I'll do is I'll put a link to those those and any other links that Dan gives me. I'll put a link to all your marketing assets. Ideally, you guys can give me a a, a link to like a video, a YouTube video or something where we can see how this Absolutely. works. We can definitely because I do think this. it's one thing to talk about. It's another thing I'd like. I know somebody like myself would like to click through and see a video, <laughs> like show me how this is going. Our system has gone, you know, at one point over 800 miles continuously without any intervention or interaction from the safety driver whatsoever. And we have the full raw uncut video posted online. It's sped up 10x, but it's still hours of footage. You can watch the very boring, monotonous driving task, but it is an opportunity to, to see, hear the things that self-driving we want have boring. to deal with. We want yeah. boring from you. Exactly. Boring and predictable. Exactly. That's yeah, just so like being on an airplane. I don't need it to be interesting. I need it to be boring. <laughs> boring and safe. So um, I'll put a link to those. And uh, so you guys can all reach out to uh, talk to Don and his team. And uh, Don, I really appreciate you taking the time. And I think you're absolutely right. Educating us is going to be be the challenge. I mean, one of the challenges. You got lots of them. But I think this is the biggest one because you're doing a great job. But if you can't convince all us laymen that this is uh, safe and boring then uh, you're not going to win the war. Absolutely. Well, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks so much, Joe. Yeah, thank you. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. 
You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.